hear it over and over again. When whistleblowers go to the media and are criminally charged for doing so, apologists for official secrecy always exclaim, they didn't go through the official channels. Why didn't they go through the official channels? Today's episode exposes the fallacies behind those bad faith critiques of whistleblowers. I am Chip Gibbons, and this is Primary Sources, a limited series podcast presented by Defending Rights and Dissent. At Defending Rights and Dissent, we defend your right to know and your freedom to act. That's why we put together this podcast, which takes as its starting premise that truth-telling can be an act of resistance and put together a podcast that brings you, the listener, the voices of whistleblowers and other truth-tellers who expose national security and human rights abuses committed under the guise of national security. Before I talk about today's guest, I want to encourage you to subscribe to Primary Sources podcast wherever you are listening to it so that you never miss an episode. Before there was Edward Snowden, there was Thomas Drake, an NSA whistleblower indicted under the Espionage Act. Drake had a long history of government service, but he started as a full-time civilian employee at the National Security Agency on September the 11th, 2001. A group of NSA employees had long expressed concern that the agency was sidelining an innovative in-house program in favor of a private sector boondoggle. They had taken these concerns to a congressional staffer tasked with NSA oversight, much to the dismay of NSA leadership. After 9-11, these former NSA employees and the congressional staffer filed a confidential complaint with the Department of Defense Inspector General. Drake assisted, but since he was still employed with the NSA, he did not put his name on the complaint. Drake would also assist the congressional investigations into the intelligence failures in the lead up to 9-11. You can imagine how popular that made him at the NSA. Since the reforms of the 1970s designed to rein in the Intelligence Committee's abuses of U.S. citizens' constitutional rights, there existed a group of politically powerful people who wanted to undo these reforms. The horrible terrorist attacks of September 11th gave them a pretext to do just that. Drake, who had repeatedly sworn an oath to defend the U.S. Constitution, was deeply concerned about spying on U.S. citizens. He repeatedly raised concerns internally with what the NSA was doing in the post-9-11 environment. But when you're dealing with a secret surveillance program approved by the president himself, what is the official channel? Drake was sidelined at work and suffered clear professional retaliation. Then, in 2005, the New York Times exposed the existence of an illegal NSA surveillance program targeting U.S. citizens. The New York Times had the information for over a year, but continued to block the story due to lobbying from the NSA and the Bush administration. Only after one of the reporters, James Risen, deeply frustrated, threatened to reveal the information in a book instead of on the pages of the Times, did his editors relent and publish the story. The Bush administration was furious. Going after the Times was politically unpalatable. So the FBI began a vicious hunt for the whistleblowers. I mentioned before how Drake had worked with several former NSA employees and a former congressional staffer to file an IG complaint unrelated to what was in the New York Times. None of these individuals we know now were involved in the Times story, but they had targets on their backs. And please remember, the complaint they filed 
was supposed to be confidential, yet they were clearly exposed and the government was ready to make an example of them. The FBI raided their homes, spun elaborate conspiracy theories about them, and tried to coerce them into turning one another against each other. All of that failed. In the process, though, the FBI learned Drake, frustrated with the failings of internal channels, had shared non-classified information with a Baltimore Sun reporter about waste, fraud, and abuse at the NSA. Half a decade later, under the Obama administration, an Espionage Act indictment was brought against Drake. It was the first time someone had been indicted under the Espionage Act in relation to giving information to the media in decades. Far from the sprawling conspiracy theories the FBI began with, they focused quite narrowly on Drake's relationship with the Baltimore Sun and charged him with unauthorized retention of national defense information. During the raid of Drake's house, the FBI had seized documents related to the inspector general complaint Drake had helped with. One of the documents Drake would be charged with retaining explicitly said on it, unclassified. Yet the government argued that was a mistake. The document should have been classified. And Drake should have known the document, which was clearly marked unclassified, should have been classified. Thus, the government claimed he willfully retained classified information. This absurd prosecution fell apart and the government withdrew the Espionage Act charges. Edward Snowden would cite what happened to Drake as his own reason for choosing a different route in alerting the public about illegal NSA surveillance. Drake has stated there is simply no way Snowden could have remained in the United States. Drake was the signature Espionage Act prosecution of the Obama administration, an administration which normalized the practice of using the Espionage Act against whistleblowers. The persecution of Drake may seem absurd to listeners, but it was a clear-cut attempt by the government to destroy a human being in order to make an example to others who might dare defy the national security state and its cult of official secrecy. Breaking news now, stunning allegations from a whistleblower at the Department of Homeland Security. A whistleblower complaint involving President Trump. What are we doing violating the Constitution? I knew that if I remained silent, that I would be complicit in a crime. Thomas Drake provided information to the Baltimore Sun about gross waste and fraud at the NSA. He was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Drake tried to get the word out, but now, as a result, he's been charged under the Espionage Act. Our guest today is Thomas Drake. Thomas Drake is an Air Force veteran and former senior executive at the National Security Agency. After attempting to go through internal channels with concerns about surveillance, waste, fraud, and abuse, Drake provided non-classified information to a Baltimore Sun reporter. In 2010, he became the first whistleblower in decades to be indicted under the Espionage Act. This was the signature prosecution in a soon-to-be wider war on whistleblowers and journalism that continues to this day. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, I appreciate the uh, the invitation to, to participate. So how did you come to work at the NSA? What was your background like before then? Well, in summary, I had extensive experience in industry. Uh, I had worked as a contractor at NSA. I had been on the international lecture circuit uh, around the world. I was doing a lot of work in IT, software engineering, software development, code analysis, 
organizational development, it was a very heady period. This, you know, go back to the 1990s, early aughts. Uh, and, you know, prior to that, I've been in the Navy, had a short stint the CIA and the latter years of the Cold War when I flew on RC-135s uh, as an enlisted aircrew member, as a, as a crypto-linguist. And when you were working as a, a crypto-linguist on the, on the air carrier, what was the attitude towards uh, the privacy rights of Americans like then in intelligence? Well, I joined, I joined the military in 1979. It was barely four years after the end of the bright and shining lie of Vietnam. And it was actually unusual for people to, to volunteer because the military didn't have a great reputation uh, at the time at all. And in fact, I was even asked by the recruiter, are you sure? <laughs> Pay was pretty bad. This is before Reagan came into office. But here's the thing, the 1970s uh, was a period in which a whole lot of scandals came out in terms of U.S. history. People forget, and it's too, we too easily forget our own history. I've said this a number of times in different ways, both you know, in multiple fora and panels and have written articles about this in the past. And it, it just seems that we sometimes forget our own history. It's not that history always repeats itself, but it certainly rhymes. And it was during the 1970s, uh, which was the Watergate era. You know, I, this is when I, this is my civic awakening as a very young, uh, young teenager. In fact, I entered the 1970s. I wasn't even a teenager. Uh, I was 12 years old, you know, as the decade dawned. And so I became very familiar, especially as I moved into middle school and into high school with the Pentagon Papers, with Watergate, a president resigning office, and of course, all the subsequent investigations that Congress held, including the Church Pike Committee hearings, Bell Absug, Rockefeller Commission, you know, there was a whole lot of things that came out. And it was even during this period that it came out that the government was doing a lot, a lot of spying on Americans without a warrant and abject violation of the Constitution in fact, doing so with impunity. And so there is, you know, a huge hue and cry, lots of reforms put into place, two standing committees, uh, both Senate and House Intel committees. I mean, this was the era of, you know, coming coin Intel Pro, FBI. I mean, it's just CIA's Operation Chaos. NSA had its own minaret, as well as other programs that were designed specifically to spy on Americans. In those days, it, it was, was telegrams. Right. It was sort of. Uh... Well, Minaret actually was literally spying on American dissidents, uh, war activists. It was a, yet another program. The one you're talking about Shamrock. actually had been. Yep. Shamrock had been ongoing for decades. Uh, in fact, it was a super secret agreement arrangement uh, between NSA, which is this incredibly classified agency ostensibly formed for foreign intelligence purposes, not to spy on Americans, to say it that way, uh, but had this arrangement with a number of the telegram companies um, and several of them, RCA uh, Global, for example, as well as others. Um, and they're being basically all the telegrams are being handed over to them, carte blanche. And it didn't matter whether it was going overseas, didn't matter if it was American or US. Uh, it was a secret backdoor arrangement. That all came out, right? NSA ultimately had to admit to a lot of this. You know, you had directors being put on the stand for the first time. You're finding out about the no such agency, that it actually had a name, even where it was located. 
it was created in the deepest depths of the of the Cold War, signed literally, and I don't consider it signed into law. It was actually just signed by an executive fiat uh, under President Truman in 1952. This is before Eisenhower became president. So that's my background, right? And when I joined the air, uh, the military, I went into intelligence. And the one thing that was crystal clear, and we went through specialized trainings, you did not spy on Americans. We weren't allowed to spy, period. If we ended up with even just U.S. communications of any kind um, in our in our channels. We had special procedures involved in which to remove it. Uh, we had we had decals machines. You could not keep it. You can only extract the relevant intelligence that was actually considered uh, of value or for the purposes of actual, you know, the requirements that, that drove uh, our intelligence collection, which was foreign. And if you were caught, listening in on the communications or collecting on the communications of an American without such authority, even though there was provisos for temporary warrantless surveillance, which you still have to go back to the the super secret court that had been formed 1978 under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which had a court and an appeals court, which in itself was a huge compromise, but it was all under the Fourth Amendment standard uh, per the Constitution. So you the penalties were were severe. Uh, you're talking five years in prison, ten thousand dollar fine for each instance. I mean, each instance meaning each intercept um, at at the persona level. So you you did we you did not because of the sheer power you had. And you know I was in the military, so I was on the military side of uh, what they call the Central Security Service. Uh, little understood even to this day. And it's also little, it's still not appreciated that NSA is headed up by a four-star general, then three-star, but now four-star. It's a military intelligence agency, but it's dual-hatted. So it's got this interesting dynamic where, you know, which hat do they want to wear today? They can appeal to the strategic side of intelligence, or they can appeal to the tactical side for the warfighter, quote-unquote. Obviously, the part that I was involved with was strategic intelligence. And so we were monitoring the communications of foreign nations. And given it was Cold War, and it's and I was stationed in Europe, did electronic warfare later until I got out of the Air Force in the latter half of the 80s. So during the first half of the 80s, I was flying on these specially configured reconnaissance aircraft, which still exist to this day, uh, listening in. We didn't vacuum up everything, but we certainly had broad purview in terms of anything that was available. Uh, that could be swept up electronically. Uh, electronic meant communications intelligence or electronics. So it was a combination of signals intelligence uh, and electronic or communication intelligence, electronic intelligence equals signals intelligence. Fascinating. It was extraordinary period, you know, 1980s, lots of world events that occurred in that period because it was the latter years of the Cold War and it got really hot. Um, it's fair to say that it wasn't just cold, things really started to heat up and there were, you know, near nuclear accidents or possible uh, launches, et cetera. But um, yeah, fascinating period. But the one thing that was drilled into us is you could not spy on Americans. And we had specialized training. I mean, we really did. You just couldn't take your radio dial and say, hey, I want to listen in on, you know, someone's walkie-talkie radio. Uh, you, You could not do that. Especially, obviously, if it was an American or suspect, even a suspected, or it was considered an American uh, net, couldn't do it. That's the quick background. Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting to look at how sort of the foreign intelligence agencies function during this time period. I'm I'm currently writing a, a book about the FBI, so I'm going through a lot of old archives. 
and you know some uh-huh. of the files has been declassified. I, I was I was sort of surprised by this. There's an incident in the early '80s where the FBI asked both the NSA and the CIA for information on Jesse Jackson, and the CIA director actually writes to the FBI and says, "No, we can't do this." The NSA goes to their general counsel. The General counsel memos, of course, largely redacted or completely redacted. And the general counsel says, no, we can't do this. And the FBI actually appeals to the attorney general. But they were very adamant when the FBI asked them for information on Jesse Jackson. They were investigating him for being a foreign agent of Libya. Of, of all FBI shenanigans you can think of. So it, it is it is an interesting period to to study in terms of the archives. So you come to work at, at, at NSA and you become to be a proponent of a or associated with a, a program called Thin Thread. Could you explain to the listeners what was Thin Thread? Yeah, well, it's often confused and, you know, without getting into the, the weeds to you know, start talking too much technical stuff and people tend, their eyes tend to glaze over. Thin Thread was one of a number of programs at NSA. They're extraordinarily innovative. I think it's important to set the, con- I have to set the context. It's sure. just really critical because it's just another program, right? And it's been often lost in a lot of the conversations. People have attempted to understand what Thin Thread was and others. Uh, I was there, so I'm in a position to actually say what is so. Uh, I knew about Thin Thread even before I joined NSA as a senior executive when I was a contractor because I was doing a lot of code analysis and I happened to run across this program during my time on this other program I was involved with in which we would analyze the software for multiple projects. So it was a very technical job that I was doing for a while. I headed up this, it was a special project that I headed up for a number of years it was under Al Gore's reinventing government. We had specialized five-year funding, which got extended a couple of times through the graces of advocates, you know, like on the House Intel Committee, much to the chagrin of NSA, because it was, you know, quote unquote outside funding. Um, and NSA was incredibly close, close-minded about anything coming in from the outside. It was like, you know, not invented here syndrome. So if it's not invented here, then even though ironically enough, it was invented at NSA. But if they didn't think it was worthy, then it didn't. It, it had no value. And if someone from the outside thought it was worthy, then it really didn't have value because you're trying to make us look bad. There's a whole cultural uh, dynamic. But during during the 1990s, it was well it became. Now you're talking post Cold War, right? And I certainly saw that transition as I went from the CIA briefly, and then there was a brief period which. I wasn't in the military, whether it was reserve, I was, had left in 89, went to the CIA, left the CIA, became a contractor. And then I was actually a reserve intel officer in the Navy. Well, you know, it was right as the Cold War was ending. As we know, the Soviet Union collapsed in 92. This is now the great peace dividend, or what's because the so-called post-Cold War peace dividend. And, you know, who's the enemy? You know, all the traditional enemies had, quote unquote, disappeared. Uh, we don't have an enemy. And I'll, I say that in quotes, enemy. That's a, that's a whole other conversation about other, right? Because if you don't have an enemy, then you don't have value. And you know, if you don't have value, then you don't have an identity. And if you don't have identity, then what's then what am I worth? I have to have something to contend against, right? It's a weird institutional thing, especially when it comes to military and intelligence, which I realize is somewhat oxymoronic when you combine the two. But <laughs> Yeah, you can say that. I cannot. You are you are a well, veteran, so you can say oxymoronic. that. Oxymoronic. Yeah, as I think I've gotten older, Chip. I, I and and 
I've even late more lately. I try not to get too cynical about all this. It's hard not to, though. It's just the human condition never surprises me. Uh, the lengths to which it will go in terms of sort of the lower half of our higher angels. Uh, we, we, uh, it just, it's an amazing, tragic comedy um, of major pro- historical proportions. And we just keep repeating ourselves, basically, or rhyming ourselves over and over again. But that's history of, of humankind. Thin Thread was one of a number of innovative programs because that were developed NSA to deal with this massive, extraordinary increase in information. People, I don't think you still to this day don't fully appreciate the analog era that I certainly grew up with as a kid, transistor radios, vinyl, right? Vinyl. Uh, I actually remember as a kid, the stereo didn't come into being stereo, you know, left and right channels until 1968. You know, I... It's, it's just an there's an extraordinary acceleration in the 1990s from the analog era of the information age to the digital. And internet, which had been around for a while, largely confined to the military government as research universities with their own networks, um, doing some pretty interesting stuff like when it came when it came to communications, even the basis for why how internet was even created originally, right? It was certainly was not a commercial product by any means. And had no security at all. It wasn't designed to have security, right? But anyways, I, I don't want to get too carried away with the history of all this, even though it's utterly fascinating and a number of books written. NSA knew it had a challenge uh, problem, right? And every year they would create what they called this list. It was a list of challenge problems. One of them was how do you deal with the sheer amount of data and make sense of it? And how do you extract relevant intelligence? In essence, NSA was drowning in digital data. It just could only listen to so much at once. Um, And I say listen in quotes because listening often meant not listening, just collecting. And then you sort it all out later. So one of the innovation labs, I'll just say it that way, at NSA developed a series of programs which ultimately culminated in this, which in itself is a conglomeration of sub-programs to deal with the information uh, glut. Extraordinarily uh, successful. It went through multiple iterations. It was designed not to suck the ocean dry, to say it that way, uh, or take all the sand off the beach. It was really, it was designed to only bring back what was valuable, what made sense, what was intelligible in terms of keeping track of the world and foreign intelligence in particular foreign electronic intelligence to be specific. Unfortunately, it didn't cost very much to develop. It was kind of a skunk works of several at NSA. It was only about a dozen or so people. But Michael V. Hayden, who was the then uh, director of NSA, uh, had put all of his eggs literally in one basket. He was going to buy the solution to NSA's challenge problem instead of making it. NSA's history, its actual See, the best of NSA was actually making it, it, ironically enough, not buying it. But this was this was this illusion that if we spend enough money through our, through our military industrial complex partners, and I'll add intelligence complex partners, we'll be able to arrive at a solution. Of course, you can imagine just with you know the panting of the contractors as they realize this multi-billion dollar contract that was, you know, had been put out uh, for bid. 
it was rewarded and and this is um, trailblazer was, right we're talking about that well I'll let trailblazer you is is this is before 9 11 okay. right this is actually this goes back to the spring of 2000 in fact when it was all announced but it didn't get nothing got awarded until about six months later uh formally and it was gonna it was gonna propel NSA into the digital age. It was supposed to modernize NSA. Now it is true NSA needed to modernize. NSA was woefully behind the times. I remember people saying there was nothing worth uh, knowing or no no secrets worth knowing on internet because um, nothing was secret. It is this weird logic because it was too easy. Then then there can't be any secrets. Secrets are only worth uh, getting if they're hard to get. But that had been NSA's, you know, NSA's history. Um, and you have these black boxes of various types, right? You know, transmitters, receivers, et cetera, right? So this thin thread was diametrically opposite sort of this buy, you know, the buy option. It was really make it. So a $3 million program approximately uh, in terms of development cost didn't stand much of a chance against a $4 billion program. And before 9-11, it was officially shut down. It never actually made it to what they call production. It was never actually deployed as part of the production chain, which is another term of art at NSA. Uh, it was not part of the official set of systems that were used to help collect and analyze and disseminate intelligence, which is sort of the mini cycle of intelligence. So... Unfortunately, the very best of American ingenuity innovation, sort of necessities and you know, that famous phrase, right? Industrial age phrase, especially early industrial age, necessities and mother of invention, we'll figure it out, right? That can do, we'll figure it out because we need to. And of course, we know that from our you know, American history. I'll just speak to American history, although there's a lot of other history as well, but in terms of American history, all kinds of breakthroughs in a number of labor-saving devices, et cetera. Well, now you're, you're in the information age. It's a different orientation, but a lot of the language is used is still the same because those are the, uh, no pun in, or pun intended, those are the analogs. And so use the analogs to help describe this new era of zeros and ones. So you have packet-based instead of circuits and switches. And a switch has an entirely different meaning, actually, in the digital space. And I, you know, this is an era, again, I grew, I, this is, I saw this rapid transition. So here at NSA, they were developing, and this was just one, I have to say, it's, it's just, it was not this isolated program. It was one of a series of programs that were, were designed specifically to solve these challenge problems, of which NSA had a number of them. Oh, of course, they're interrelated. But ultimately, it was how do we deal with the digital age? Unfortunately, when you have the weight of a trailblazer and other programs tied to trailblazer, they tended to get fed first. And if you had, you know, if you had something that might make you look bad, your ability to survive came shorter and shorter. And this was made crystal clear with a whole series of incidents, issue incidents that arose at NSA in the 2000 and 2001 period. And that's kind of where things are at when we get to you know 9-11. So how um, does 9-11 change the NSA? Wow. I mean, I could write several books. Uh, some books have been written uh, about it. I'm attempting to write a book uh, in part about it. Not easy to write because that was my first day on the job reporting to my new duty station. A dramatic shift. Uh, as I've said, there's sort of using Star Trek lingo, this tear in the time-space continuum. There was there was definitely a tear, right? There's before 9-11, there's after 9-11. 9-11 was predictable. That's a whole story in itself. It never should have happened. 
I, I mean, I can play back that day, literally second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week. And for the first four months, it's all a blur. NSA was caught, was caught flat-footed, but never should have been caught flat-footed. Uh, NSA is part, what was a systemic failure by the U.S. government to keep people out of harm's way. This was, remember, this entire intelligence infrastructure had been set up during the Cold War uh, in part, so we would never have another electronic, emphasize electronic, electronic Pearl Harbor. And that's exactly what happened on 9-11. But counterterrorism was not a priority. I can tell you that in terms of the intelligence community at all. It was a backwater operation, NSA. People just weren't paying attention because, you know, as I was told when I was in the Navy back when they tried to drop the World Trade Center Towers the first time in 1993, who cares about, and and this is the pejorative phrase, but I remember a very senior intelligence officer uh, in the J2, actually was the J2, the intelligence officer, you know, who cares about some raghead spouting off fatwas in the desert. Uh, That was sort of the attitude going back, you know, eight years earlier as to, why do we need to deal with asymmetric threats? And it didn't matter that there'd been a whole series of intervening events uh, since 93, but 93 should have been a massive wake-up call that just maybe that there was an issue here, but it wasn't considered a priority. And so, you know, 9-11 happens, right? So almost 3,000 people are murdered that day, something that weighs, continues away on me to this day. Uh, obviously, compare that to the 600,000 plus we've lost to COVID. It's a pretty small number, but it was the largest loss of life uh, on American or American occupied soil. If I go back to Pearl Harbor, you know, since Pearl Harbor, it really was. And so the, the historical and what it meant for the globe was hugely significant. I don't think people fully appreciate, though, what 9-11 unleashed uh, in terms of what had been building for some time. And this goes back to the 1980s, where the intelligence community and others, FBI included, did not like all the constraints they were put under from all that had come out during the 70s. Uh, Executive Order 12333 uh, was really in 1980, was really 81, was the opening wedge to sort of wrest back control. Um, that's a story into itself. It still is playing itself out as we speak. It's an executive order. No executive order is actually law. Uh, Unfortunately, it's treated with the force of law, but laws can only be legislated from Congress and signed into law uh, by the President of the United States. Executive orders are in their own category, and not all executive orders are lawful. I have to say it that way. Um, And this was a means by which using the veil of secrecy and national security and state privilege that under the Reagan administration, they started clawing back a lot of what had been, I'll say this in quotes, lost due to the reforms uh, of the 1970s. But again, that's another... quite explicit about that. I mean, he he campaigns to unleash the CIA. He gets involved with the the Heritage Foundation, which wrote a uh, platform document for either party to adopt, but clearly designed for Reagan with sort of turning off some of the... um, protections of civil liberties. Uh, One of his first acts in office is he pardons the two FBI agents who were convicted of violating civil rights. They had could have faced a long time in prison. They got a fine. Interestingly enough, one of them was deep throat by some coincidence. Reagan really comes in with this sort of 
revanche's program about sort of unleashing the intelligence communities again and, and sort of rolling back these yep. reforms that have been in place for and that's sort of the political backdrop of, of 12 triple three for people who aren't familiar with it we yep. don't have to go into all the technical parts of it but it was part of this movement with reagan and the heritage foundation and and the intelligence service to sort of come back and sort of reopen the floodgates i mean but here's the kicker what it permitted was these special cutouts these special exceptions we need to expedite exigent conditions is another phrase you would hear which was a pseudo legal uh cover to provide you an excuse it's a warrant exception to a warrant exception and In criminal law. unfortunately yes that's right the ways to get around it and run it uh, meanwhile, on those who were doing formal intelligence, and I'll, you know, formal in quotes, but uh, we were under these very strict guidelines because it was under U.S. Code, you know, eight, criminal code. You know, we're talking 18, right? You could find yourself, although I'm not aware of anybody who's ever been convicted for having violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, except I'm certainly familiar with what happens if you expose the violations under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance yes, Act. Well by your own government. But apparently if the government's violating it, then it's okay, right? It's just, we, again, this other weird logic that there was these higher national security needs that took primacy over the constitution. And something has to, you know, something had to give. I, it, I think this extraordinary tension that's always existed in terms of, of sort of secrecy versus transparency, open government versus, you know, it's a hidden government, the behind closed doors versus let the doors open. Remember, this goes back to War II, uh, the Manhattan Project, they had to put into place, I realized, given what they were developing, you know, this, this system of classification, which I became extremely familiar with during the Cold War. Uh, with all these different levels and compartments and accesses and all access, et cetera. So these exceptions became more and more the norm. And, you know, you also have very powerful interests, corporate interests in this space who end up, and I'll just say it this way, special agreements being made as cutouts between the United States government and corporate interests because, you know, hey, what's good for America, right? Or what's good for us is good for America. Uh, obviously not doing it for free, but that's sort of the lay of the land. I mean, I, again, you've highlighted sort of this return to exercising secret power. I mean, Cheney is very much a part of this entire history. He always thought Nixon got a raw deal. He had said very, very publicly a number of times that if he was ever in a position senior enough that he was going to restore the imperial presidency or words to that effect. He now had his excuse. And he spends much of the 80s in Congress advocating yeah. these sorts of extraordinary measures. He writes some of the minority reports for congressional hearings during Iran-Contra, where he decides oh, well, that, yeah. you know, Reagan couldn't have broken the law because the Boland Amendment was, the Boland Amendment is what uh, prohibited funding of the Contras, yeah. was illegal. Like, Congress can't tell the president he can't fund the Contras. Therefore, Reagan didn't break the law. This really uh, shocking yeah, notion of executive power. He also was a uh, opponent of freeing Nelson Mandela during this time. Yeah. He voted against multiple, or at least one, congressional resolutions to... Yeah. Um, and of course, history has it. George W. Bush puts him in charge of finding his vice president. And guess who Cheney selects? Um, and that tells you everything yeah, about well, the man you know right there. These forces have been brewing for some time. After 9-11, yeah. they have the excuse to really take the reins off. Obviously, 
you know, there are plenty of abuses of power, at least on the FBI side of things that, that I'm familiar with during the 80s and 90s. But but after 9-11, they really can have the gloves come off, as I think it was Cheney who said that. What types of things do you start to see at the NSA that concern you? And what do you do with those concerns? Yeah, well, I mean, shortly after 9-11, I mean, this is, and this is eyewitness, okay, for me, specialized equipment, you know, is being moved into certain parts of the building complex, I'm hearing whispers that we need to push the bounds, that we don't know where the threat is. You know, obviously, you know, they were literally almost literally in the shadow of NSA. Some of them were hanging out on Route 1 in Laurel, right? Hanging, staying in a motel before they did their deed. So it became very apparent. Oh, and then General Hayden is making multiple trips downtown to He's meet NSA with director then. NSA Director Michael V. Hayden, three-star at the time, making multiple trips downtown to meet with people like Cheney and George Tenet and David Addington, uh, Chief of Staff for Cheney, uh, an extraordinarily influential person in all of this. And there's other characters as well, some that one of them that actually is now a Supreme Court justice. But that's a whole other part of this uh, <laughs> In terms of just unleashing the the secret side of the government and allowing it to go where it had only ventured in part uh, on occasion before, this literally was opening up the floodgates. Um, and it became clear that verbal authorization had been given NSA early on, right after 9-11, which subsequently ended up, which I didn't know at the time, I only found this out later, first week in October, October 4th to be exact, as it turns out, where he, he basically signs his secret findings, a presidential finding authorizing NSA's extraordinary power to be turned on U.S. networks and, and U.S. communications. Uh, it's it just it's it, even to this day I get goosebumps when I mention it because I realized in this period and we're talking barely three weeks after 9/11 that not only had the wheels come off uh, the the constitutional train to say it that way we were in an entirely different vehicle I did not recognize the vehicle it was an unconstitutional vehicle constitution did not matter anymore because it was constraining the government to operate under emergency conditions. And that's effectively what uh, Cheney and, of course, with Bush's blessing, placed the country into this set of emergency exceptional, you know, executive action. But exceptional now was increasingly the norm on an extraordinarily broad scale. It wasn't just in this space. It was across pretty much all the spaces, all because of a failure to keep almost 3,000 people, including almost 300 uh, non-U.S. citizens uh, out of harm's way. Every time the intelligence agencies and law enforcement, too, fail to do their job and protect people, they are lavished with more money, more more power, more more everything. Well, there's a, there's a perverse incentive, right? If you fail, you actually get rewarded. <laughs> you think 9-11, which there, and we'll, we may get to this talking, there were major investigations, but you would think that the failure in itself, which they funnel the responsibility of the central government, would have said something, right? Because all the warning signs are there. Even Tenet said the system was blinking red three years earlier in 1998. I was there as a contractor when I saw the memo, but he was largely ignored. Just didn't it didn't matter. And whatever his grievances were, it wasn't going to you know cause us too much harm, anyways. Uh, yeah, there was these terrorist incidents. Yeah, coal. I mean, you had these Tanzania, right? Increasing you know the Kobar towers. 
there's a whole set of incidents that to me were, were even then were like, wait a minute, there's something going on here. But it was not considered to be of a threat sufficient enough uh, to warrant changing the way in which you did intelligence, let alone how do you respond to it. And so, of course, you're going to end up reacting to it. And so the, I think, which in part, there was... You can understand it's like, oh my God, we gotta, you know, we gotta counterattack. Oh my gosh, you know, we've got to go after Osama bin Laden. Oh my gosh, we've and, and associated movements. But it became this rallying cry at the same time and looking for excuses to unleash other powers. And when it was all totally unnecessary, we all the government already had all the powers it needed. Um, it didn't need more powers. The irony, of course, you alluded to it is that. The failure in itself was in, became an increasing demand for more power. And we're seeing that happen. I would hear, I, we would hear this if we just had the data or if we just had the access. Uh, Hayden tried to, General Hayden actually tried, I don't, I don't know why people, there's some people practically worship the guy. I mean, it's extraordinary, his own history. Um, he's a revisionist. He's a hardcore revisionist. And he's actually said, if I had these powers prior 9-11, I could have stopped 9-11. I mean, so, people, it, it just comes out and says it. So you, you start to become concerned with the surveillance. You also start to become concerned with some of the waste, fraud, and abuse you see with, with some of these other programs. What do you initially do with, with these concerns? Who do, you, who do, you, do you go through internal channels and, and how do they react? Well, just imagine for the moment, again, uh, yeah, I'm writing a I'm writing a book about this. You know, I go into great, great detail. What was it like to be there as this all is unfolding in front of you to your horror? I mean, this is Pandora's box. You're literally, you're staring, the, the box top is open and all these theories are escaping, right? Just sort of play on the creep myth, myth for a bit when it comes to Pandora's box. And, you know, you're looking into the abyss and the abyss is looking back at you. You can attempt to shut the top right of the box and sort of ignore what you saw that opened up in front of you or you can do something right and the doing something to me would mean i would have to stand up and i'd have to speak out and i was a senior executive i mean i was brought in under a special outside program ironically by hayden himself under extreme pressure from a number of entities, but primarily the Intel committees who were advocating for rapid change NSA and that they needed to hire people from the outside that had some industry experience who could make, make change happen, change that was necessary. But of course, NSA being NSA, not unusual for, for this type of institution, especially a secret institution, to be incredibly resistant to change. And so, yeah, well, I could have just ignored all of it, right? I could have resigned. I could have just quit. You know, I could have moved on. I could have acted like I didn't see anything, but I couldn't do that. It's not who I am. And I knew that any standing up was going to come with a cost. I knew that. And so the biggest thing that I was confronting was the violation of the Fourth Amendment, this abject violation, willful violation. Uh, I, re I remember very specific conversations I had with my immediate boss, who was my hiring manager, uh, Maureen Beginsky, the number three person in NSA. She was the signals intelligence director. I said, what are we doing? We, we just we can't do this without, you know, without a warrant. We can't be violating the rights of uh, U.S. citizens willy nilly uh, just because you know, almost 3000 people uh, were murdered. 
Um, that's not who we are. And she demurred. I mean, I, I remember the, the very specific conversation. This is after I had been tasked to find the very best NSA and put it into the fight. And that included Thinthread, by the way, as well as a number of other programs, which all got shot down because it was direct threats to the prevailing order. Um, it was just an extraordinary battle on the inside. And all NSA was looking to do, um, and it came out of her own mouth, was how much money can we get? How, how can we convert this into you know, a major boondoggle uh, in terms of funding? And I remember the workforce was utterly devastated. They knew we had failed the nation. They knew that our job in secret as silent warriors, to say it that way, both civilian and military, uh, we had not kept up our promise. Um, people took it really, really hard. And said, oh, no, no. 9-11 is a gift NSA. We're going to get all the money we want and then some. Get all the money we want and then some? Holy smokes. Um, I mean, it was just extraordinary. So, you know, I confronted her. Uh, she def- she basically directed me to go talk to the general counsel. I had an extraordinary conversation with the general counsel first week in October. This is where we're talking hair on the neck raising conversation. In terms of this is Vito Potenza, who it turns out was the lead attorney, one of the few who was read in to stellar win. This is not Trailblazer. Remember, Trailblazer never, never did get delivered. This is Stellar Win, an entirely different program uh, in which that had come that was now the umbrella program for the secret surveillance programs. Um, and I, I confronted him. I, I, I still remember the conversation nearly verbatim, right? And he says, you just don't understand, Mr. Drake. You know, the White House has approved the program. It's all legal, little, 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 the sort of the heart of what he shared with me. And as soon as he said it's all legal, I was thrown right back to what Nixon had said, right? About if the president, president says, yeah. yeah, it's legal, right? It's not illegal. The president does it, um, which is another form of what happened under Trump. You know, I have Article Two powers; I can do anything, basically. Well, no, you can't. And Article Two is not an excuse; um, it does not give you unlimited power, um, even as the executive, and even over the executive, you don't have unlimited power. Um, there's also but, during so, this. Uh, go ahead. Uh, there's also during this time a Department of Defense. Uh, Inspector General investigation concerning Thin Thread, and I believe a, another program called Trailblazer. Is that is happened that, later? Happened later. Okay. Um, that started. That didn't actually begin formally. The actual investigation of eighty, or sorry, uh, two thousand three. They announced it in December two thousand and two because there had been a uh, hotline uh, complaint, uh, which I was in uh, the unnamed senior uh, official. But four others, three who had worked at NSA um, and one who was who had been, um, but not at the time, had had recently resigned um, and reti- retired, basically, in April t- 2002, Diane Rourke. They filed a complaint, caused a huge stir at NSA. And, and th- Diane Rourke was actually, the staffer on the House Intelligence Committee, right? That's that's her role in this? She was the professional staffer, Republican, yeah. yeah. But on permanent staff members. Diane, or, yeah, permanent staff member, and then there was three retired uh, NSA officials that I had all I gotten to know who were all tied to Thin Threat. 
So they filed by name. I was the unnamed senior executive. It was agreed that I wouldn't be named because I was still working at NSA. And in my name on there, I'd be immediately tagged, you know, at least give them a little bit of work. They figured out who I was pretty quickly, but Do you yeah, think that, that didn't start till that didn't start till 2003, but it was a two year plus investigation. Do you think that put a bullseye on your back participating in that? Well, I had a bullseye on my back even before that. I had a bullseye on my back from almost, well, from the day I stood up to Maureen Baginski. Um, see, again, there's a whole lot of threads here that we don't have the time to go into. But I was also part of an effort working in partnership with the FBI to put together the special affidavits that the FBI brings forward to the secret court. Um uh, so that the secret court could, can quote unquote issue a warrant based on Fourth Amendment, that all got shut down in late September. Uh, I was considered to be a rogue, a rogue, a rogue operation, which in fact had been approved. When I confronted her about it, she again um, deferred because you know, it, I mean, I, I won't go into the details, but uh, it's clear the NSA had now had other means by which they were going to do this, and in fact, the Fourth Amendment didn't matter anymore. It was null and void for, for all intents and purposes. It was in the way. So sort of the, the yeah. NSA and the general government's vindictiveness against you, as well as the uh, three former employees and congressional staffer who filed the DOD uh, IG complaint really escalates in 2005. The New York Times. Publishes, yeah, well, oh, yeah. do you want to? Do you want to wait for that question or? Yeah, it's, I mean, well, no, you're accelerating forward because one thing they forget about, this is often forgotten about my own history. And this is what really put me on the radar. I have to tell you, I mean, I got, I've got to share sure, this. Sure, sure. It's super critical because this is really what put me on the radar. Uh, I think whether or not they would have come after me because of the New York times article is a separate issue. If what I ended up doing had not happened. Um, and there's a whole lot of other threads to behind all this, but I became a material witness in two uh, 9-11 congressional investigations. And one of them was Saxby Shambliss, who head up a subcommittee under the House uh, Intel Committee, the Standing Committee, and then the Joint Inquiry, which was a much larger, this is prior to the 9-11 Commission. Uh, I was providing them, uh, especially the Joint Inquiry, because the Saxby Shambliss subcommittee hearing, well, investigation set of hearings was really a prelude the opening act to the much larger investigation. I spent months with investigators off and on with lots and lots of data. And I shared with them uh, information about Stellar Wind and what NSA was doing. Uh, It is really that set of activities that put me on, on the map. I was already in the map as a troublemaker. I was advised based in the summer, well, late spring of, of 2002, that maybe I should go back uh, to doing what I used to do, that maybe NSA was not the right job for me. Uh, I got pushed out of my position uh, reporting directly to Marine Baginski. Long story short, I ended up in, in the technical side uh, for the next number of years. Um, so I couldn't do much damage you know, on the operational side. That was sort of my penance, as it were. However, there was these investigations. And I found out later that what I had shared with the joint inquiry in particular was considered so secret that it couldn't even be in the secret report because it was compartmented information that they did not want other parts of the government who had access to, and we're talking pretty top secret and then some special intelligence, They it was still too secret to be included even in that secret report. Gee, I wonder why. 
because the NSA had been given this, the running top cover. I mean, you, you have cover, you have White House cover to basically violate the Fourth Amendment at will. And so if the White House has approved it, how can we, you know, that's executive. I mean, and if you follow it, because you're going to follow a lawful order if it comes to the president, right? Any order comes to the president's lawful. Yeah, right. Uh, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was actually unlawful. It was the president himself was in violation of the Constitution and didn't even. He didn't have to. The irony in all of this, right? And so I show you my motion is he never had to violate the Constitution. We had all the tools we needed. There was no constraint. There, there was even special protocols. I mean, even the FISA itself had been updated five times to keep up with the technology, contrary to what. General Hayden and others had said that it was too old, that it was outmoded, outdated, all this other language they would use as an excuse to basically to hide behind what they had decided to do unilaterally. One of the ironies is that when I confronted that same attorney the, the, in the Office of General Counsel, I actually said that, you know, I said there's, and I just found myself, it was, even today, it's just, it's just so surreal to even share this right even again today with you i said there's there's a means in this under the constitution if the laws are inadequate or are insufficient to meet the demands of of society demands of the day we have a legal means we have a legislative means by which we can change law he says nope they'll with what we want to do they'll say no so you can can you imagine in the fall of 2001 that if they had gone to Congress in the open with what they wanted to do, that even even post 9-11, remember the Patriot, this is before the Patriot Act was signed, kind of the dark of night, that they did not want to say what they really wanted to do. So they hid behind you know, executive authority, you know, the state secrets privilege, uh, classified memos, quote unquote, right? This John, you got involved, by the way, uh, in terms of OLC. I mean, this is an extraordinary story of how far the government was willing to go to justify putting themselves into an unconstitutional vehicle for the purposes of responding to 9-11 when it was completely unnecessary and never actually addressing the core issues that arose for the failure to prevent 9-11 in the first place, or at least mitigate it. So accelerate forward. I continued to blow the whistle as long as I could. And I always had the option. I knew this from Ellsberg, right? I always had the option to go to the press, but I knew if I went to the press that that was, you know, crossing the Rubicon. That was touching the third rail, as it were. I, I certainly knew what the price was that Ellsberg had paid. You know, he actually went to trial for two years. Uh, I was well aware of what that would mean to me, not just in terms of my profession, my career would have would have immediately ended, but it could be a lot worse. I could end up in prison for decades, if not longer. I was well aware of what it meant, especially post 9-11, to go to the press. And so after my last formal whistleblowing took place, which was actually with General Keith Alexander uh, in November of 2005, shortly after he had assumed the reins as the new NSA director, this extraordinary article comes out uh, in the New York Times written by Eric Lichtblau and James Risen. And I had nothing to do with it. I had no contact with the New York, New York Times reporters. I, in fact, at that point, I had no contact with any reporter. I had never had contact with a reporter under uh, in any unauthorized uh, manner. And I knew that as soon as that article came out, that I'd be on a hit list. I already knew that because so few people knew about Stellar Wind. And they were desperate to protect 
Stellar Wind in particular. It was a greater secret. Remember the whole thing with Abu Ghraib? Yeah. This worldwide torture regime, black sites had already started coming out. But this secret was even more secret because as much as torture in itself was a massive scandal of, of just global proportions in terms of how far it went off the rails there, reverse engineering the very program that I went through as an aircrew member it's SEER up in Fairchild Air Force Base, right? I, I went through all that. I know what it's like to, to be, quote unquote, waterboarded. I went through all of that, all the enhanced derogation techniques, which is another euphemism for torture. I went through a Chinese water trail. I had all of that in a training environment. As severe as it was, it was still a training environment, but they reverse engineered it. And then they're now meeting that out on those who they're just picking up out of the battlefield and Black sites conveniently located in places that are, quote unquote, outside the purview of the U.S. Constitution, including Guantanamo, ostensibly. Right. So this article comes out and I know that by April of 2006, I was on a very short list, but I made a fateful decision between December and the early part of 2006 that I myself, given, I'll say, the dirty knowledge that I had. I felt compelled like Ellsberg was. Uh, I felt compelled at this point after having exhausted every channel that existed. Uh, I felt compelled to go to a reporter, in this case, to the ba Baltimore Sun national security reporter with what I knew that was unclassified. And then what happens when this New York Times story is published? Obviously, you had nothing to do with it. The people who filed the OIG report had nothing to do with it. But the government comes after all of them, right? In the immediate aftermath? It comes after, well... They went after a very select set of individuals. And the way the FBI works typically is that they leave the ringleaders for last. Okay. Uh, I believe I was the last person that was raided uh, after others, including former colleagues, including Diane Rourke, had been unceremoniously raided in July of 2007. I was raided in November at my home and, to, and, and my office. I, I left NSA, I was basically forced out and ended up although still tied in NSA administratively, I was teaching at the National Defense University and had been since the August of 2006. And so I was unceremoniously raided myself uh, in late November of, of 2007 after having been at the National Defense University. I was now there a second year and life now was upside down and inside out. I, went, I was placed on immediate administrative leave. Uh, they were moving to revoke, permanently revoke my clearance they actually, I mean, there was a whole lot that was being alleged about me. That was November of 2007. And to make a long story short, and then you got, you've got the transition, right, from President Bush until uh, President Obama. Most um, transparent administration where, in history. That was a joke. And, that was what they and, said, yes. And remember, part of his platform, I mean, it was on his platform, but, you know, whistleblower. Right, with transparency, where's the best? Who's the best source to ensure that we are transparent? It's whistleblowers. He touted the whistleblowers. He thought later he actually chortled about how many how many leakers he had gone after. Right, that's why I'm, obviously my perspective on Obama is is rather is rather shaded to say it that way. It would be uh, hard for of, you to have a non shaded perspective on the president who presided over. Well, to me, he's a hypocrite. He, to me, he's a, he's a hypocrite. He just assumed the worst in me. He knew about me. He ended up finding out about me personally. I know that uh, from direct interactions that people, people I knew, formal interactions that they had with Obama. He just wanted to believe what 
his people were telling him about me that I was this really, really bad dude. And I had, it was, was causing grave damage. So the most, you know, how much graver can you get when you cause grave damage? Uh, the gravest of all damages to, to the national security of the United States. And he used that as a hammer, right? Is that damage to national security? Uh, he took he he took he took greater umbrage to leaks, quote unquote leaks, than even Bush did. Uh, Bush made some comment in his memoir about you know why punish people for policy differences, right? Although the obviously the investigation began under me, I mean under Bush of me, but it took Obama, as it turns out, and a different prosecutor uh, to actually indict me. So I found myself. Um, in in April of 2010, facing a 10 count indictment on the Espionage Act. It's very shocking with with your case and also with with John Karyaku cases and, and with Jeff Stirring, who's already been a guest on this program's case, and that these are all cases that start under the Bush administration. But the Bush administration ultimately isn't the one who brings the charges. It's it's Obama, and these are such abusive investigations. It, it's just sort of hard to fathom why another administration would, especially yeah. one led by a constitutional law professor who's pur- purporting to do the most transparent. It is a, it is a hypocritical 180, as you pointed out, and yeah. it's something that has to this day very much sort of shocked me. I would love to know what the internal decision was to take these Bush yeah. era abuses and go the step that the Bush administration would not take. I, I have a lot of I have a lot of information on that. It's just extraordinarily difficult to put it together in a way that makes sense uh, logically for a reader. It's not it's it's a more complex answer right, okay. to fully address. Right. And there's been multiple attempts by people who thought they knew Obama, purported to know Obama, had ins- claimed insights in Obama as to why would Obama go after people like me? And and with such veracity, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking no president likes leaks, right? I mean, you can go all the way back, right? Just listen to Jefferson talking about the press in terms of the early years of, of the American Republic, right? But Obama took personal umbrage. I think he really, and I think he had a chip on his shoulder. And part of it was this insecurity about national security, mm. uh, that he had to show he was strong because he didn't have he wasn't military. He didn't have the background. Uh, he was a junior senator, right? When he ran for office, he didn't have, you know, community organizer. When it came to national security, though, I, I think he needed to compensate. I'll just say it that way, right? And anything that was going to make the executive power that he now held as president, uh, someone did at one point. If you go back, you may find know the video chip where someone asked him about all those campaign promises you made, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I voted for Obama. I actually did, right? You know, hope and change, right? I mean, I, it's, you know, I, you know, buy into slogans. It was more than a slogan to me. I think it was more than a slogan even to him. But, the, but then when he was confronted once, this is early on, it's like, oh, well, I, then I became president. Like somehow becoming president made him different. Well, yeah, I probably did in part becoming president made him different. But he had all of a sudden now has these vast powers. And one of the things that I have said over the years is powers that are granted from president or passed on from president to president in terms of the executive branch are not easily let go of. Why would you want to give up or or the chance you might I might need this power later? There's a, I've I've sort of joked about this in the past in different fora about this silver platter of 
presidential powers that goes along, you know, with with the Resolute Desk, right? And it's not some secret compartment and all the other stuff you hear about, right? Um, and beyond letter, the letter, the letter, whatever's the left behind, the leave behind letter for the next president, which is more of a traditional protocol thing. These are powers. They're extraordinary. And as much as the Constitution limits them, you start giving the president even more power than they already have that's limited. Guess what? Give it up. I mean, I, powers, powers is this weird thing. It really is. And I, I think he found out the kind of power that he had. I mean, people thought he was going to roll back the Bush years. I mean, you got to remember the context of his own election, which was he was not Bush that the Bush years were an excessive response, right, to a national tragedy, international tragedy called 9-11. And the entire Bush administration obviously was was directly affected by 9-11, infused by 9-11, and it was energized by 9-11. And as much as he fell out with Cheney during his second administration, I think people genuinely thought that Obama would roll back the excesses of the Bush administration. Well, it turns out he didn't. He just didn't. I mean, I, you got you to gotta look the gift horse of history right in the mouth. Despite his own memoirs, his multiple memoirs, his other books, as eloquent as they are, right, you can't hide the things that he actually continued uh, that, were, that were given to him by Bush. Much to the chagrin, but much to the disappointment of a number of people. And I think they, they sort of gave Obama a very long leash, right? Because it's like he's Obama, first black president. My gosh, he and he wasn't Bush and he was definitely not emotional. And it was, you know, cool as a cucumber. Obama was always, well, it turns out that's a bit of a myth, too. Yeah, it was very difficult you know, I, raising criticisms of Obama in, in the early years. I mean, I, I yep. been involved with the anti-Iraq war movement. I've been very opposed to, yeah. to the NSA surveillance. And I was I, I was very sort of defending rights in the sense as a nonpartisan 501c3 organization. Yeah. So we have no position on any candidates. But I, I wasn't working here yeah. then. And I was very uh, skeptical. I was skeptical from from the beginning of some of his, his claims. And I, <sighs> I remember trying to raise with people sort of the drone strikes or some of the things he was doing and just just people not wanting to listen. And I remember when I was when I was in college, he brought Jeremy Scahill, now The Intercept, to come and speak. And he told me how, you know, during the campaign, when he would, would criticize, you know, rightfully Obama's foreign policy stuff, people would get up and, and walk out. They, they just wouldn't hear it. Um, so, you know, that first Obama term, it was really, really hard to raise any sort of criticisms about the NSA, yep. about about the drone strikes. If you did that, it was, you know, why aren't you giving him a chance? Or, you know, he has to undo the Bush era or, or he's stuck with all of this or he can't look weak in front of I Republicans. Think, yeah. Can't look weak. I mean, that's another thing. He can't look weak. I think he just got enamored, I have to say, and, and this, unfortunately, you get, you get captured by your own presidency. I think he was you got captured by, I do, is, is for all of the things people like about Obama, I think he got captured. And I think it compromised. I really do. I, I think he could have been a far better president. But, they, you know, again, I'm, we're not that far removed from the Obama administration. We're not, right? Yeah. You know, we have Trump plus, you know, Biden's first six months, seven months. I, th- I think Obama, obviously, there's going to be a number of things said in terms of history that were history making, right, with regards to his administration. 
but there's so much more he could have done even even you know even for member and he called himself a member he's referred to himself as a mongrel I, I don't think he ever coming to terms right in essence he was now at the apex of power when it came to political power in the united states and you know here he is as a black man but he never you know he was not really a black man either i mean you know he's only partially a black man in terms of his own history i think he wrestled with who he was for many many decades and you know how do you represent who you are? I mean, I, you're the president. I mean, he's made these famous statements, famous speeches that are extraordinarily eloquent in terms of who we are as Americans, right? That we're not red, we're not blue. Um, but having said all that, yeah, he did not take kindly to leaks uh, of any kind. It didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter if it was to improve transparency in government, highlight government wrongdoing. If anything, now you're going to be punished for it and punished severely. And I was a signature espionage act case. I mean, now you're going to get into why the heck was I charged on the espionage act? That's a very good question, right? Why would he resurrect? The only other person who'd been charged like this was, was Ellsberg. There was a couple of cases between Ellsberg and me. Morrison. Uh, the Morrison. Uh, yeah, but that he basically sold some pictures to James, James Defense. Defense Weekly, uh, not known to be, you know, a rabid enemy of the United States of America. And then there was APAC, which is totally political. And the the U.S. citizen in that case it was under house arrest, but that's as far as it went. The whole case got tossed. And we then did a my whole case, episode there was, with uh, Carrie Schenkman on the history of the Espionage Act from 1970. Why then was it resurrected under Obama? This is a fundamental question. I, I don't. I, we probably, we don't have time to go into it, but because I'm the signature case, and because it's so in, intertwined with the first person charged for non-spy activities, which was Ellsberg, uh, in like manner. I mean, being charged in the espionage, there's always going to be an asterisk next to my name in any history book. There's been a number of books written that have me noted because I was charged on the espionage act by Obama uh, and his, his department of justice. This was to send an incredibly chilling message. And you have to remember the espionage act with the all getting into the details of its history was what was left over from the excesses of the Wilson administration uh, in World War One, that if you sp even spoke out against World War One, you were you were considered to be a threat to the United States. You know, it had alien sedition acts, the one piece that remained. But look who was gone. We who went we went after under the Espionage Act. I mean, if you were a dissenter, that's remember it was supposed to be after spies and saboteurs. You were you were basically giving national defense information uh, to someone not authorized to receive it, which in its literal sense, having been one, was involving couriers. So you actually had possession, authorized possession of national defense military information, and you were currying it to someone else who was authorized receive it. But guess what? You either kept it, hit it, or gave it to somebody that wasn't authorized to receive it. That was the original basis, right? I mean, sort of, I say, I won't, I won't use you know, in its, in its, in its, in origin, origin story, right? Espionage. What's espionage, right? Technically, I, you know, if I had been, ended up being captured by the Soviet Union, when I was flying RC, like Gary Powers, right, with the U-2, he was charged with espionage. We were trained how to resist. That's why I went through resistance training, because you weren't really a spy, but you were operating as if you were like spy-like. Well, yeah, spy-like, it doesn't matter. If you're charged in espionage, it turns out you gave information to someone not authorized to receive it. 
we've designated it as national defense information. In this case, it's classified. We we allege it. It therefore it's true. You know, strict liability. Boom. You're so, you're. It's over. What exactly did the government accuse you of? They it's it's retention of documents, right? Uh, yes, for the purposes of disclosure, they actually twisted. They twisted the U.S. Criminal Code 18, right? They twisted it to include, which is not even, it's not, this is another thing that the government conveniently does is, yes, under 793E, I retain documents. This basically, that particular paragraph was added to deal with Alger Hiss going back to the 1959 Security Act. It was actually uh, added. Carthier Amendment. Senator, Senator, Senator McCarran, McCarran International, Las Vegas, took full credit. If you read the, go back and read the tr- congressional transcripts, you'll see he added that to what was the, the 1917 Espionage Act, specifically with Alger Hiss, quote unquote, retaining papers to give to somebody else not authorized to receive them. Um, so I was actually, you're, you're right. I was not actually charged with disclosure, but I was charged with retention for the purpose of disclosure, which doesn't even exist in law. And, and some of those documents you were accused of, of retaining, they were classified after the fact. Is that correct? Actually, they were never classified. They were never classified. The doctor, all documents are unclassified. Um, the irony of it is, is that even during the course of pretrial and all that, uh, it came out that there was a couple of them that were actually, they defined them as unclassified after the fact, but they were never classified to begin with. What happened is the government retroactively classified. Yes. So you're, it was called course class. Right. If you have an unclassified an understatement. and then they say this document's yep. now classified when you retained it, allegedly retained it, it was unclassified, but we're now classifying it so we can charge you. I mean, yep. I think most well, people listening, convenient. that makes no sense. Well, it makes no sense at all. Unless the government, in fact, at one point they said they were born classified and I should have known that. It doesn't matter whether it was marked or not. It's all der- derivative. There's this weird thing called derived classified or derivative. Because very few people are actually original classification authorities, okay, which gets into the classification system, which in itself is utter, utter, utterly broken. Because you basically, we always joked, even when I was in the military, hey, when in doubt, just classify it. Because it was always easier to do that. You're already in the classified environment. So whether it's classified or not, doesn't matter. It's all classified because it's, now it's partly their argument. Anything that was born in a classified setting, think container, building, Okay, facility was automatically considered classified. The irony, of course, is all my stuff went through review. I had to clear my offices out before I left NSA, Um, before I went down to the National Defense University. I had to go through the classification review officer that was in my unit actually went through. I had all the boxes open, right? They take samples, right? Everything was you know separated out. All the classified stuff actually went to a separate place. Some of it's historical. It goes to the history department. You know, there's a history thing at NSA. Uh, if it was unclassified, I determined whether or not it would remain there, give it to somebody else, right? Or I, if it was truly unclassified, I could take it home or bring it with me to NDU. It's just the, this whole thing is cop guess because it's all controlled by the government. In fact, at one point during the pretrial proceedings, they, ar- they argued that the court had no bearing as to determination of whether something was classified or not classified at all. Court could not weigh in. Only the government could. The government said it was, it was. If it wasn't, it wasn't, which was just utterly ridiculous. I mean, that's one of the arguments they made in, in, in the Daniel Hale case, and it's, it was flabbergasting to 
to read. So what ultimately happens in your case? Well, imagine, you know, your choice. You can imagine this is April of 2010. Okay. We're talking barely a year into Obama's first administration. There was a smaller case, Shamai Leibowitz. Uh, it was under 798, which is actually communications intelligence. It was not under the Espionage Act. Uh, it falls in the 79 series, but it, it actually, that didn't happen until 1950, again, during the McCarthy era. And you know, I'm I'm behind several eight balls, Chip. I mean, I what do you what do you, how do you defend yourself? I mean, my God, I mean, I was well aware of history. I knew, and I already gone through multiple attempts by the government to get me to plead out. I mean, I again, there's a whole history here that is extremely compelling in terms of how far the government will go to punish you. And at one, well, I remember when I was still trying to clear my head during my, I was in administrative leave, I'm going to go back a couple of years now prior to the indictment. This is April of 2008. I'm still technically an employee of NSA, but on administrative leave, full pay, full benefits. I'm up in New York City. I was in Central Park, just like clearing my head, right? Realized I was facing really, really long odds. I, I knew that. I I was having to face the distinct possibility that I was going to end up in prison for the rest of my life, similar to what Ellsberg faced. I knew that. I knew it. And an FBI contact agent, basically the one that I was administrative agent, who was part of the raiding raid team, uh, called me up and said, and I was still cooperating at this point. This is like my third interview with them. They said, we need you to come to our facility. It was right outside of D.C. in Maryland, one of their facilities, field office. And so I went there. And then when I got there, they said, there's someone here to see you. Well, nondescript office, no windows. And guess who walks in? The prosecutor, right? I mean, we're talking, this is heavy duty. And, and he basically looks at me and says in no uncertain terms, how would you like to spend the rest of your life in prison, Mr. Drake, unless you start talking? We can, we, with what we have on you, we can put you away for a long, long time. Uh, and I said, I will not plea bargain with the truth. He, they wanted me to plea bargain to something on the order of 15, 20, 25 years. Then that's the last thing I was going to do. I knew exactly what I had done. Or I knew exactly what I had not done. But I knew the odds were long because they were going to pit FBI agents, including FBI agents that came from their highly specialized mole hunter unit. The mole hunters are actually designated FBI agents. They're especially trained to go after real spots. Hmm. That's how, that's much of a threat I pose, apparently. I was worse than a spy, apparently, but I was at least the equivalent of a spy. <laughs> Who was I spying for, Chip? I mean, it's just the Baltimore Sun, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Well, you know, you say the American public, but American it was all public. public interest, right? See, the kicker is in my own case, which I know is unique. All right. None of what I disclosed or retained was classified. It didn't matter, though. I knew that the government could just assert it was. And that's all they had to do. You know, Ellsberg's the first to admit that what he disclosed was, was top secret. And he was part of that report. What I disclosed was unclassified. But I but I, but I yes. Did I have unauthorized contact reporter? Yes. But it's not unlawful or illegal or violation of the Espionage Act to have contact with a reporter. In fact, NSA had a administrative policy. It was a violation of administrative policy. It certainly wasn't a violation of, you know, US code, you know, 18793E, but that's what they turned it into. That I had retained this to give to a reporter, in this case someone unauthorized, and that and in fact that's what made it really bad because that means everybody gets to see it, including the spies. 
you know, see, spies give up secrets to other spies in secret. They don't typically give up their secrets to a reporter who then publishes them on the front page of their paper. But they really thought, it's important to know, in April of 2010, they really thought that I was the ringleader of what had been exposed to the New York Times. Important to share that with you and, and your listening audience. People don't realize, it wasn't just that I had gone to the Baltimore. So in fact, I think the government thought I was playing games with them, that I was really the ringleader who had gone ultimately to the New York Times. And so I deserved everything that I was going to get and then some. So right. yeah, how do you deal with it? I oh, mean, no. my God, I mean, how do you defend yourself against the Espionage Act? That is sort of the question, right? I had long, later had long conversations with Ellsberg about this. There's no defense. There just isn't. You don't have any opportunity, even with due process. You would think you can face your accusers. You can, but you have no opportunity to, to mount a public interest defense under the Espionage Act because there's a strict liability law. The fact that you were charged with it is you're guilty. There, there is no presumed innocence. It's, it's really Kafkaesque. We're talking upside down. So all the normal standards that would apply to a defendant in terms of protecting the defendant, the defendant has rights, kind of go out the window when it comes to the Espionage Act, because the government is retaining, in essence, control of the context and meaning for all of the allegations, whether they are simply asserted or they claim that they have proof in the form of documentation. And the proof, it's one thing to have verbal, it's one thing to have an intercept, uh, it's one thing to be in on, be wired, right? Wired conver- you know, telephone conversation. It's a whole another thing to have documents. And so they attempted to turn the documents upside down and inside out against me. And we're talking incredibly innocuous stuff. I mean, I, I can't, even to this day, when I think about it, it's like what they, how far they went. They actually doctored. It's not commonly known in my case. They actually doctored a couple of documents to make it look like they're classified when they weren't on purpose. Okay. They entered information before the judge. They tried to play the judge for a fool to manipulate him. I mean, this this is something that is just unconscionable in my mind. Is the DOJ main justice and this is William Welsh, who was the then the chief prosecutor, who ironically enough had had led the public integrity unit and got basically railroaded out because he completely messed up the Ted Stevens case because he was doctoring evidence and he was making up evidence. Uh, he ended up ultimately getting sanctioned by one of the D.C. Circuit uh, judges. And, and interestingly enough, uh, this is holder early on, Obama's administration, once he became attorney general, actually um, ended up, you know, he got he kept it. It was like, this is his, re- I guess his rehab program was, we'll give you the Espionage Act portfolio so you can go after all these bad people that are leaking national security secrets, right? So how do you defend yourself? Uh, I had public defenders, right? Okay, public defenders, who do they normally defend, right? They typically are defending people that have committed criminal acts or wrongdoing. And, you know, obviously they defend them because everybody has rights. And in some cases, there are things that in terms of due process and rights that must be defended, right, before for a jury, unless they plead out. But a lot of them end up pleading out. Here I was facing trial and I was facing many decades in prison. I was facing 400 months. I'm, you're, you're talking a long, long time, right? 400 months. 
mean, do the math. I mean, that's like 35 years in prison. This is April, uh, late April of 2010, and this extraordinary article written by Jesslyn Radak, who at the time was working for the Government Accountability Project, wrote this op-ed in LA Times. And it's like, wow, this is a person that gets it. Turns out she'd been a whistleblower in the Department of Justice, John Walker Lynn case, speaking of no due process, American citizen, wrong place, wrong time, right? They wanted to make an example of them. And in essence, I was being made an example of uh, that was what was happening. And, you know, in all of this, they kept avoiding what was it that I had actually disclosed, Say it was about the damage, although they never did prove damage. We asked for that. They never, oh no, that damage reports come later. They come after, right? After sentencing, never saw it, never saw a damage report because there was no damage. Uh, I I said, they said I'd have the blood of American soldiers on my hands. That was literally stated uh, by by, uh, the prosecution team. The blood of American soldiers on my hands because of what I I had quote unquote disclosed. Wow, here I am disclosing. Literally, the U.S. government violating the Constitution at the highest levels. Now, am I well aware that by tagging, as I had during my whistleblowing, tagging the likes of Tenet and Hayden and Cheney and Bush and Addington about all this, the stellar wind stuff, you're right, besides all the billions and billions of fraud, waste and abuse and the 9-11 intelligence failures, and subsequent cover-up of those failures, yeah, you're not going to, you can expect some kickback. You can expect that the the bear is going to take a few slashes uh, out of you. Um, And what they want to do is put me away for essentially the rest of my natural life. And so the the defense rested really on raising constitutional issues. Uh, The defense rested on countering the government assertions of classification. The defense rested on the fact that I was a whistleblower, and the defense also rested on the fact that uh, this was First Amendment. And in fact, uh, the government tried to eliminate as admissible or relevant anything in dealing with First Amendment classification uh, or my whistleblowing, ironic love. Gee, I wonder why. The very things that were sort of, that was the triangular defense of me, because obviously, you know, they say what's, you know, what's inculpable, what's exculpable, right? Yeah, that would have been in my favor, of course. So anything in my favor. They actually withheld Brady Giglio. They withheld critical information from, that's a long story in itself, right? Again, playing the court for a fool or attempting to do so. So what happened- Brady violation, that's when the prosecution is, has exculpatory evidence and they don't give it to the defense. Just, just to well, clarify for listeners. Well, thanks. Yeah. And there was a bunch of it, right? Um, fortunately, the judge was allowed that to continue, that I was in fact a whistleblower, that there was a First Amendment. And they had to include, right, what the government actually had said about the articles, right? There was four key articles that they had centered on, right, in terms of the, the grave of gravest of damages to the NASCAR United States uh, and the classification system, because obviously they're claiming all this is classified, right, at the tippy top level, by the way, compartmented on top of that, when in fact, none of it was classified. So I got in contact with Justin Radak and... Uh, extraordinary individual um, a guest on who this program. recognized uh, that I was behind, you know, I was in, I was in severe, severe straits, you know, it's that we would have to find some way. I knew this even before I read her op-ed. I have to find some way to influence the court of public opinion. I knew that this is similar to what happened to Ellsberg. Uh, same thing, uh, very similar. And, uh, but, but how do you do that, especially in a post 9-11 world? 
especially under Obama, who, you know, everybody's looking the other way. Look, I tried to enlist the assistance of ACLU. They wouldn't defend me. They refused to defend me. They never came to my defense publicly in any way, shape or form. They never filed a friend of the court brief. The only person, I'm literally only person who filed a friend of the court brief, this should tell you sort of the influence of Obama, right? Or the effect, sort of the, the uh, halo effect of Obama. The only person who filed a formal friend of the court brief, an amicus brief, amicus, was Justin Rada, which was accepted by the judge. No one else did. None of the constitutional or defense organizations, not the ACLU, none of them. If you approached, I can tell you, multiple representatives that should, should have known better and senators were approached, radio silence. Bernie Sanders wouldn't touch it. You know, Patrick Leahy, I mean, I, what my home state, quote unquote, is Vermont, wouldn't touch it. My father at the time, who was still living, attempted to contact his local representative, basically told him a polite, in a polite letter in response saying, not in my jurisdiction. They just, they deferred to Obama that I must, there's no way that I would be charged by the government with espionage if I had committed it. There's just no way. I mean, this literally was black and white. It was that crystal clear. I, uh, I had violated the Espionage Act. I deserve whatever time it would come to me. If I'd done the crime, do the time. That's what people kept saying, not realizing how politicized this was, that I'd become a political prisoner in my own country. Um, so Jesslyn, to her credit, and I, and I call her out in, in, in a very singular manner now, although others came later, slowly began behind the scenes. I ended up meeting more reporters. <laughs> this is one of the ironies. Way more reporters off the record than I'd ever met reporters on the record, <laughs> which was one. <laughs> And all of a sudden, there's all these, including the same ones that have written the New York Times article. Very interesting conversation, as you might imagine. All clandestine meetings for all the obvious reasons, because anything I could not say, I couldn't be quoted directly, because anything that I could say was considered impeachable and could be presented by the government as evidence against me at trial. And so long story short, going into 2011 now, she set up a meeting, Jesslyn Radak, set up a meeting with Jane Mayer the extraordinary investigative journalist with a New Yorker. And there was a meeting in Bethesda, Maryland. I was working at the time at the Apple store there in Bethesda, had a meeting up the street at a cafe. And she realized this is an extraordinary story that there, she dropped everything she was working on at that point. And for four months, all she did was focus on what it, what my story, what, it, and so there's this extraordinary article still to this day. It's considered the seminal article that was published in May of, of 2011 in the New Yorker called it's The called Secret Me. Share. And it was, that was Enemy of the State, question mark, right? That was on the front cover of the New Yorker, May, the, the May 16th issue. Now, guess what? I've been interviewed, uh, just the, uh, going back a month and a half, Scott Pelley, 60 Minutes. That got published. It was the last formal 60 minutes, top of the hour, second hour, 14 and a half minutes on my case. Uh, so all of a sudden, oh, Ridenour, truth-telling prize, April okay, of 2011. Um, so all of a sudden, now the heat of mainstream media was kicking in. And I've said, it's ironically enough, it's actually the press that became my saving grace in the end with the extraordinary you know, assistance and defense of Jesslyn Radak. But that's really began to turn the tide in with respect to the case. Now, I still faced, I still face trial, right? I'm facing trial in June. It was actually going to be the 40th, 40th anniversary of when 
the Pentagon Papers would, would start publishing. It was an irony, June 13th, right? We just had the 50th anniversary here recently. Hard to believe it's been a decade now, but since all this happened to me. Then the Washington Post, the local paper of record, the Post from <laughs> Woodsward and Bernstein, people that I, like journalists that were like, wow, gumshoe out there on, out there on the beat, figuring out Deep Throat and everything else. We find out who Deep Throat was later. Uh, it's like, whoa. They say very powerful op-eds right before trial was scheduled scheduled about uh, maybe he is a whistleblower in government. And don't forget that we're the press and the government is up to no good. You know, the American people deserve to know. Extraordinary. I mean, this all now is kicking in. And the long story short is the government entered into plea negotiations. This is them reaching out unilaterally uh, to my public defenders. This was basically just days before. In fact, it was literally uh, there was a week prior and they came and said, we would like to enter into negotiations. Frenzied week. Long story short, the day before we were scheduled to stop all proceedings, the very next day was would have been Monday. This is a Thursday afternoon. Thursday prior to the 13th, which was the, uh, the scheduled start of the trial, we remember the jury had already been sequestered. Alternates had been already selected. There was a break uh, late afternoon, and it was during that break that a, a plea agreement on my terms was hammered out, where the government would agree to drop all 10 felony counts in the original indictment. I would plead out to a minor misdemeanor for having exceeded authorized use of a government computer under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act which, by the way, the Supreme Court just weighed in on. And uh, I couldn't have even done that if that had been in effect back then. That's another sort of a side story uh, in terms of just the history of the conviction at all. The Supreme Court rule. No, can't because it's I've already asked about that. It's because it's it's not retroactive. Okay, Mm. so without and no incarceration of any kind and no fine. That was the agreement. So the judge sentencing was scheduled for July 15th. It's an extraordinary, the government would not give up even during the pro forma sentencing on July 15th of 2011. They continued to pursue wanting to punish me. And in fact, they tried to basically relitigate during this uh, final, the final sentencing hearing. And the judge would have nothing to do with it. He launched into this extraordinary defense constitution. And it does basically said, this doesn't pass the smell test. You know, you put Mr. Drake through hell. He's already financially devastated and then some. And so what was his sentence? 240 hours of community service and one year probation. Uh, No fine and did not end up in prison. Uh, It was a minor misdemeanor. So I'm not a felon. There's not not a criminal record per se. I mean, technically there is, but not in the felony sense. So there's no other restrictions on me in voting or anything else for that matter. Uh, and I ended up interviewing three and a half dozen veterans from World War II to the present day as to, you know, what, what matters and what do we defend and why do we sacrifice ourselves? And was it all worth it? Including that was your community service interviewing. Project. That was my community service project. It turned out it was at Fort Detrick. It was with the uh, Army Community Services Director. But it turned out I ended up interviewing veterans from World War II to the present day for the Library of Congress's Veterans History Project, including guests who I interviewed. I mean, this is amazing. I actually met Joseph Lockhart well into his 90s at this point up in Pennsylvania. He was the lone radar person on the North Shore of Oahu on that fateful morning of 7 December 1941. 
Oh, wow. Um, I say it, I, I say it with, with some emotion. He stayed behind and you newfangled high tech, top secret technology. He knew when he saw the blips that these were not our planes. He knew they were Japanese. He knew they were enemy. And he called Schofield Barracks. He alerted the barracks. And guess what they said? They didn't believe him. Oh, can't be. Ignore it. Didn't believe him. If you want to hear just an incredible story of his story, because he happened to be there. He did his job. He warned, alerted. Can you imagine if his warning had been heeded? We will never know, will we? That's, that's I, an incredible I, um, story. So I went free. I went free. And, and you know, you'll hear it in my voice right now because every time I get to this point, especially in this interview, and I can't begin to tell you what it means to be free. I mean, I, they did everything they could to take away my freedom. I'm incredibly fortunate. People like Hale, Reality Winner, Stone ended up leaving the country. He saw exactly what had happened to me. Uh, others have ended up in prison. I, I'm the only one to date who, other than Snowden, right, and it's pretty much the case, he's going to be living overseas for quite some time, if not for the rest of his life, uh, who is able to remain and remain here and remain free, but at extraordinarily uh, high cost. So That actually segues into my, my final question for you. Sure. Um, you were terribly mistreated by, by our government. It is one of the most yeah. very shameful incident. Um, I mean, you could have probably just moved on and said, I'm, I'm done with this chapter in my life. I never want to revisit it. But you've been extremely outspoken for people in similar situations. I mean, I was I, I had seen you on Democracy Now! in college, but the first time I, I ever saw you speak in person was at Georgetown Law School at a fundraiser for Chelsea oh, wow. Manning. She was she was yep. being court-martialed. And then I, I know you traveled to Georgia for Reality Winner's case. I know you joined uh, yes. Defending Rights and Dissent outside of the Cato Institute because we're not allowed to hold banners in the Cato Institute holding up Stand with Reality banner. <laughs> yeah. I know you've participated in our online events for pardoning uh, Edward Snowden and for um, for, yeah. for freeing Daniel Hale. And, and, and I know been very close to Daniel Hale, who is in a really oh, horrible yeah. situation no, right now. Yeah. Why is it important to you to continue to speak out for people in your situation? Well, how, how far will you go to defend the rights and liberties of others? You know, I know how close they came to taking mine away. And all I did was, remember, I took an oath four times in my government career, four times, to do what? Defend a piece of paper against what? All enemies, foreign and domestic. I end up defending the Constitution against my own government, and the government saw fit to punish me for having defended the constitution, the very thing they violated, and then some. So I feel there's extraordinary obligation to stand up for others who can't always stand up for themselves. And I am well aware, given who I am and what I went through, and I consider myself to be a pretty strong person. You'd have to know more about my background and other things I've been through to understand, you know, I almost lost my life a couple of times. So I was well aware of what it means to have your life almost gone or about to lose your life. I already knew that. And so it, it's imperative to me to defend those who can't defend themselves or have or don't have the means to defend themselves and to give voice to to the voiceless, to give voice to those who cannot stand up because if they say anything, it'll be used against them. Uh, and so in that case, I am unapologetic when it comes to defending people like Reality and Daniel and others, Daniel Hale, Reality Winner, respectively, because they've certainly gotten extraordinary raw deals uh, from the government, simply for you know speaking truth to power. I mean, Hale's an extraordinary story all by himself, and there's more that's coming out. Uh, Reality Winner, you know, disclosed fact that we had 
what appears to be clear foreign interference in, in the fundamental infrastructure of our voting system. And even that's still being covered up to this day. I mean, come on, it's, you know, the 2016 election. It's, and of course, she's a signature espionage act case. How do I relate to her? Not just from a military, you know, Air Force, right? Same with Daniel Hale, but the fact that, you know, she herself made a fateful decision, right? You know, it, she just couldn't remain, she couldn't look away. Even though it was an area that was, you know, was not her specialty area, she did have access, right? And it was in, definitely in the public interest. But, but, you know, Trump turned her into his signature espionage act case. Like Obama turned me into his own signature espionage act case. And so, you know, I felt this is, is within my own means. I continue to speak out. I've had many people who thought I should have gone the Winho way, lay way, way. Uh, you may recall he got tagged by the government for, quote unquote, leaking national security secrets. Winho lay did not leak anything. He, they were trying to make him into a scapegoat. And in fact, that is the judge apologized, pulled him out of prison. And he said, you know what, I'll write a book and then you'll never hear from me again. And that's other than there's a, there is a website dedicated to his life. Um, He wrote his book and he's gone fishing. And I think some people thought that that's probably what I should do because I paid a high enough price, right? For standing up against government wrongdoing and illegality. And, you know, I've had long conversations with Ellsberg. Uh, I interviewed Ellsberg for the Veterans History Project. It was the, that's another extraordinary interview. And all those interviews I did, six plus hours. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was just, I mean, and I obviously I related to him directly because of what he had gone through earlier and that, that I was, had just gone through. You know, you talk about history kind of turning itself uh, and meeting right at the edges. I mean, this is where I find myself. I I think I said this earlier that I feel extraordinarily comfortable in the presence of an Ellsberg and his generation, uh, as I do with Snowden and the millennials, because given the era in which I was born and where and when I grew up and how I saw, you know, that transition from one analog era of the information age to digital and then seeing what was happening with surveillance. And just government power writ large, but you know, very few people actually stand up. And despite everything that happened to me and others, people were continuing to stand up. So it's it's a continuing obligation, a continuing. It's me, right? I mean, it's just me helping others. And then, of course, you know, I realize what whistleblowers go through on a personal level, which I can begin. I mean, that's part of what I'm there. I'm there for them to get them through what is the worst time in their lives. And, you know, that's certainly more recently been the case with Daniel Hale. Reality is is very fortunate. She had an incredibly proactive mother and family and her sister and others but you remember, it, t- it took a long, long time before even her case even made a dent in mainstream media at all. And even to this day, it's just, it's not all there, right? It, in terms of just all the things that happened with her. Hale's another one. Very underreported. Most people don't really underreported. And so if it's underreported, guess what? It's as if it never happened. I know that in my own case. I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary, the deafening silence of the media or they kept deferring to Obama that there must be something really, really bad with me, that I was some, not just some anomaly, that I was, you know, this insider threat of such dangerous proportions that we actually not just have to get rid of it, we have to put it away for a long, long time uh, because, you know, he's a danger to society. Remember what they call Ellsbury? Ellsbury was declared the most dangerous man in America by Henry Kissinger. 
what, because it revealed the Pentagon Papers, which in itself was the Vietnam was a bright and shining lie. I mean, again, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Tom, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. You've always been very generous with your time with defending rights of dissent. I mean, anytime there is one of these horrible persecutions under the Espionage Act, we always know we can count on you to speak out and you're always the first person we we call on as as a result. We, you know, we're just human beings, Chip. I I appreciate the opportunity. And, And obviously, for me, it's I've dedicated the rest of my life to defending what life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. I mean, those extraordinary words are aspirational. I realized for all the faults and foibles of the United States, and there was many of them, you know, all kinds of stuff was built in. Women couldn't vote. Slavery was there from the beginning. Original sins of America. I realized, you know, founding fathers who were slave slave owners and holders, right? We, you know, the indigenous peoples, we just genocide, right? I get all the contradictions of our country, but the aspirational nature of the Declaration of Independence in particular is what has always called to me as an American. But those words are far more than just American words. They're fundamental to sort of universal human rights. And so, you know, I've the silver lining chip is that I've met all kinds of people across the world who are of like mind in terms of defending what it means to be a human being. How can we be who we are with each other? How can we unveil the finest of ourselves and our own creativity? You know, if we don't get along, I mean, I, this is where there's much more in common between us than there is that divides us. And yet it seems the focus is always about division and tribalism and, and ways to break us apart and keep us apart. That's not who I am. And that's not who I ever aspired to be. It's ultimately centered on the very best of who we are and can be as human beings for you know each other but to the greater good of all of us on this third rock from the sun tom i want to thank you again for joining us and if people want to check out the podcast we have a website primarysourcespodcast.org you can also subscribe on all of the places podcasts are are found there's more than i ever imagined there before i started doing this um and the work of defending rights and dissent can be found at uh (laughs) rightsanddissent.org 